So this morning I'm going to, I want to introduce our speaker today. Some of you uh, will know him well. Uh, but Tim, Tim Blaber uh, is uh, currently uh, based over in Christ Central in Portsmouth. He has just started as the Director of Training for Commission. Commission, for those of you who don't know, is uh, the family of churches that Hope Church is part of, about 60, 70 churches in the UK and another 100 or so overseas. And so Tim is the recently appointed Director of Training, and uh, he uh, and his family, Lizzie and his family, will be moving over to join us here in Hope Church uh, in the coming months, they're in the process of selling their house, and so they're going to join the churches, the team here. Tim is an outstanding speaker. If you've been, uh, you're at the West Point Festival last year, uh, you will have heard him speak. He's an outstanding speaker. It's our joy and privilege to have him here with us today. Uh, Lizzie and the family are up at Hope North this morning, so we'll be leaving here at the end of the meeting, and uh, I'll be reuniting. Uh, the, him with his wife, um, but uh, we have the privilege of uh, of hearing God speak to us through Tim as Tim opens the word. So I want you to put your hands together. Let's give him a really rich welcome. Thank you, thank you, Steve. Um, we're so excited by all God's doing. We're so looking forward to coming and being a part of this wonderful church. I just said to Steve, wow, that time of worship was just so wonderful, wasn't it? Just praising God. It's just so effortless when you sense his presence with you. We're coming because um, there's a whole wide world out there of people that don't know what many of us in this room know. That is, Jesus truly is the only way to a meaningful, happy, peaceful life. And we desperately need to equip and train men and women to be willing to go to the ends of the earth to declare that wonderful message of hope. And what a privilege for us to be involved in, in helping that happen. And that's what I feel God's called my, my life to, to equip and to send and to be involved in strengthening the church. And, uh, and so thank you, we love you, we love the team, we've got great friends here already, so we're excited to be coming. And it's a tremendous privilege to be preaching today from Romans chapter 8. Uh, the text will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you, but if you do, can you turn to Romans chapter 8. And uh, the book of Romans really is a massive boast. We were hearing earlier on, I will boast in his death and in his resurrection. Boasting goes back centuries and centuries to ancient warfare, where great armies would gather and assemble the cavalry together, and the captain of the armies would mount his horse, and he would go along boasting in the strength and the power and the might of the army before they go into battle. If you've seen Lord of the Rings, picture Aragon commanding the armies, boasting about the battle that's ahead and as he rouses the army there are those moments when the, they have their swords and their swords are in their hands and they are celebrating they know they are strong and mighty and they're going to win and I would say that Romans is a great big boast in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and Romans 8 
is that moment when the army of God, the church, if you like, we've got our swords in hand and we're rejoicing and singing and celebrating who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And I've loved listening to some brilliant preachers in this series over recent weeks and it's a privilege to finish off. Romans 8 verses 31 to 39. Feels a little bit like this is my debut and I've been asked to take the penalty. (laughs) This is spectacular. Let's hope I don't do a Chris Waddle. Right. Romans 8, 31. That's the last football reference. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring any accusation against God's elect. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you for these triumphant words that we are hearing today. We thank you for Jesus. He's amazing. What a victory he's won for us. I ask that you by your spirit would strengthen our faith today and increase the glory of Jesus in our eyes. Let us see more of him and his glory. Let us understand more of what he's done. I pray for the person who's never come to be convinced of your love for them, that they'd leave convinced today. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So to start with, let's, I'm just going to go through the passage. Verse 31. What then are we to say to these things? Paul says. What then are we to say? You've been through Romans 8. It starts, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And throughout the whole letter of Romans, it's been wave after wave of gospel truth declaring all that Jesus has achieved, all that he has done. And as you read through Romans, you're reading the work of a theologian par excellence. There's no one really like the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest, the greatest Bible teacher only to be rivaled by Jesus. And as you're reading this stunning theology, this stunning insights, there are moments when you get the sense that Paul, the man who just is devoted to Jesus, if you like, almost overwhelms the teacher. And he's writing devotionally. He's writing out of the depths of his experience of the love of Jesus Christ. And there are moments when he just breaks out in praise. In Romans 11, He says, 
Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God. That deep cry. Oh, as this letter is being scribed by his mate Tertius, I'm not imagining at any point, as Paul is dictating, that he's got his head in his hand. This is tough. Bits of paper screwed up and chucked. Ah, oh, Tertius, this, I'm really lost. I need more coffee. Get me more coffee, make it strong. That, that's just not how this is. He's dictating, but he's expressing. And they believe in one take, he's declaring under the power of the Holy Spirit, he's seeing the mighty, majestic work of Jesus. And, and there are times, and I see it here, what then are we to say? In light of all of this, what are we to say? And he asks rhetorical question after rhetorical question to emphasize how spectacular a thing the gospel is and how wonderful and stupendous a work Jesus has done. Have you known something of that where you're almost lost for words when you're in his presence and you're almost like, what do I say? What do I say? And then he just proceeds with staggering the staggering implications for us in light of all Jesus has done. So, first, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, again, rhetorical question, because God is for us. God is for you. If you're a Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, he is for you, full stop. He is for you. He is working for your good. He is working for your future. He is working for your becoming like Jesus in every moment of your life. He is absolutely 100% for you. And you might go, but with the stuff I'm going through at the moment, are you sure? Last week, Steve was speaking from Romans 8, 28 through to 30. And it says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Do not ever doubt that God is for you on the basis of the trying circumstances that you find yourself in. The wonderful assurance that we have as believers is even in the most desperate of circumstances, God is working so that nothing you go through is wasted. He's working through every circumstance for your good. Why? Because he's for you. And he's for me. The one who's for you holds the universe in his hands. The one who is for you is the one who commands the lightning. The one who is for you is the one who in a moment can calm the storm. That's who's for you. That's who's for you. And if he is for you, who can be against you? That's the question which Paul asks. If he is for you, who can be against us? 
Now bear in mind, he's writing in a period in the history of the church where Christians are regularly being killed on account of their faith in Jesus Christ. If he is for you, who can be against you? They could go, well, uh, Paul, that guy over there, he wants to throw me into a, a den of wild animals. He's against us. He's like, yeah, but he can't touch your soul. What can he, you know, who can be against us? Do you have a right view and perspective of who your God is and the reality that this God is for you? And if you read this verse in the context of persecution and suffering, which is true of the context Paul is writing to here, and bear in mind, he ends up going to Rome and that's where he loses his head. And we know around the world today, thousands upon thousands of Christians are suffering persecution. And verses like this are dynamite, powerful. I may lose my life today, but God is for me. How wonderful that is. And in the relative comforts that we enjoy, challenging maybe, to plunder in the same way when you're living with the constant threat of maybe martyrdom and persecution. He is for us who can be against us. Now, if you are still doubting, if you doubt that God is for you, if you are questioning whether or not God does love you, if you're questioning whether or not God is on your side, he goes to give the ultimate antidote to that doubt, the silver bullet of faith in his next response. If you're doubting whether or not God is for you, this verse is what you need to hear. Verse 32. He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. If you're doubting whether or not God is for you, Paul would say, hey, he didn't spare his own son for you. Why is this the silver bullet? The measure, the measure of someone's love for you is not shown simply in what they give you, but in what it costs them to give you a gift. The measure of your love for someone is shown not so much in the giving of a thing as in how costly the thing is that you are giving them. Let me explain. If you're going out for a drink with a friend and your friend says to you, I'd love to buy you your pint, that's nice. If you go out for a meal and you've had a lovely meal and your friend says, let me cover the bill, I'd love to cover the bill, that's nice. You feel loved. What if your friend says, you know, I'd like to buy you a car? <laughs> See Steve at the front. Now, if you've gone out for a drink with a multimillionaire and the millionaire says, I'd like to buy you your pint, you're like, yeah, I was kind of assuming you would. <laughs> That's no great cost for the millionaire to buy a pint or to buy you a meal. If your friend turns around to you and says, 
I want to give you my life savings. I want to give you my life savings. I've been saving for a house. I'd, I'd like to give it to you. How does that make you feel? How loved does that make you feel? A gift. It's what it costs to give it. Now, if your friend has done that for you, and it's a gift, so they're not expecting you to repay it back, you're going to want to live a life of gratitude towards your friend. You want them to know just how much you appreciate the gift that they've given. You're never going to stand for anyone accusing them of being stingy or tight. She's so tight. You're like, no, no, no. She's the most generous person I know. You're not going to allow those kinds of accusations because you know firsthand just how generous they are. Paul is saying, our Father in heaven demonstrates his love for you and for me in that he gave what is infinitely precious. He gave what is the greatest ever gift conceivable in giving his eternally begotten son, in giving the beloved son for you. He didn't hold back Jesus. He gave the one who he had been existing in loving, perfect relationship from eternity past. The father gave the son for you. This, for the Apostle Paul, is the answer to the person who is doubting whether or not God is for them. He gave, he gave Jesus for you. He gave Jesus for you. For you, for me. He gave the Son for you. He gave his beloved Son. What a cost. How deep the Father's love for us. Vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch's treasure. He did not spare Jesus for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's a gift of the Father And then he goes on to deliver another question in the second half of verse 32. He says this, how will he not with him grant us everything? If he's given the son, won't he give you all things? If he hasn't held back his son for you, won't he graciously give you all things? How you read this verse and understand this verse goes some way to capturing your entire theology of God. Or in another, let me put it another way. How you read and understand and apply this word will go some way to defining who you see God to be. Won't he give us all things? 
Is this word true? Is this verse true? Is this true? Well, yes, it is. Do we have any problem with this verse at all? How many of us have asked God for certain things and we've not received them? Can we have a show of hands? If you've ever asked God for something and it's not come through, yeah, that's me, okay, that's anyone. Probably any of us that have ever prayed a prayer would say, yeah. Okay, so we've got a bit of a challenge here with this verse. But Paul's just said he's not held back his son. Won't he give us all things? Why doesn't he give us all things? If that's what it says. Or in other words, your friend who gave you their life savings, are they going to hesitate to give you a piece of gum if you ask for it? Obviously not. And yet we have this situation where we pray for things. Sometimes we ask God for very, very important things. And yet he doesn't seem to give them to us. So there's a problem which we need to work through. We need to understand this text and understand what it means. Here's what it doesn't mean. Firstly, it doesn't mean that God gives you whatever you want. It's a shame, isn't it? It doesn't mean that. And it cannot mean that. Because if God gives you whatever you want, that makes him subservient to you. If God gives you whatever you want, that makes you God. I want this God, done. I want that God, done. I want this God, done. Who's God in that scenario? Have you ever wanted something and asked God for it and he didn't give it to you? In hindsight, you're really grateful he didn't. I mean, I could write a list of things. I've been on my knees and said, God, please, Please give me this thing. But the thing, in that moment, that is all I can see is this particular thing that I want. It's all I can see. I can't see the better thing that he wants to give me. If I could, I'd ask for that. But he can see those things. I thank God he hasn't given me certain things I've wanted. So it can't mean he gives you whatever you want. And it can't mean that he's tight-fisted. It can't mean that he is lacking in generosity. Why? Because he's given us Jesus. So it's not like, well, he's not answered this particular prayer for me, so somehow God is a miser. Somehow God is tight-fisted. Somehow God is stingy. No, your friend gave you all their life savings isn't going to hesitate from giving you anything. And so this is Paul's argument. He's given Jesus for you. Won't he graciously give us all things? So it can't mean that he's tight-fisted. And it can't mean that he doesn't love you. It can't mean that. If you don't get the thing that you want, it can't mean that God doesn't love you. Because that's where we can go in our minds. You can think, God's not doing this thing for me. He can see how much this is hurting. He knows how desperate I am. Surely God understands how horrible this situation is. 
therefore he doesn't love me. Or he doesn't exist. And so we have to find some other way of navigating this world. And that's where a lot of people will go for having an inadequate understanding of this verse and of Jesus' teaching. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. So it can't mean he gives you whatever you want. It can't mean he's tight-fisted and it can't mean he doesn't love you, loves you so much. Remember when the disciples went to Jesus and he was in the boat and there was this massive storm. Do you remember what they said to him? Don't you care? Of course he cares. I want to quote C.S. Lewis and John Newton. He says this. It's like being at the cinema, isn't it, on the front row? Whether we like it or not, God intends to give us what we need, not what we now think we want. John Newton, everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Do you believe that to be true? It's very hard when you are acutely feeling something. And we think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prayed, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. I think you can make a really strong argument for saying there was a want of Jesus in that moment. But his prayer is, your will be done. That's what is necessary. And it's easy to pray, Father, your will be done. But to pray it, and mean it. Well, that's another thing entirely. And it's the best place to be. Well, what is prayer all about then? What is the point of prayer? I read a book recently, and this guy uses an illustration. He says, I want you to imagine you're in a dinghy, and you've got a hook, and you cast it onto the shore and you pull yourself in. You're not pulling the island towards you. You're pulling yourself towards the island. He says, when you pray, you're casting your will onto the will of God. And you're pulling your will closer to his. You're not pulling, he doesn't bend to yours. We bend to his. So prayer, oh, it's so valuable. And do you know what? He loves to do miracles. It's not that he doesn't love to do miracles. He does. But he loves to glorify Jesus, ultimately. And he's working, ultimately, to do that. Next thing we see, verse 33. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more has been raised and he is at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for us. Who can bring any accusation or charge against any of God's elect, those who are Christians who put their faith in Jesus? Who can accuse you if God himself doesn't? And Jesus is interceding for you. What does that mean? It means this. Jesus has, <laughs> comes before his, fa his father with Tim Blaber in his arms. And he says, Father, this is Tim. And I, I died for him. 
And I, I paid the price for him. And I took away his sin and his shame. He's my brother. He's your son. And the father embraces Tim Blaber on account of the fact that Jesus, his son, presents him for him. Isn't that amazing? He does that for you. He's interceding. He's fighting your corner. He's on your side. He's for you. Who can judge? Who can condemn? If the, if the great high judge of the supreme court of the universe says you're free, what idiot can bring a charge against you? What wise guy could accuse you if the great judge of the supreme court of heaven says you're forgiven, you're free, you're let off? No one. Don't allow anyone to bring an accusation against you. Jesus is our advocate. He pleads our case. Christ has done it all for us. My boast is in him, not me. Our boast is in Christ and not ourselves. That's our boast. This is Paul's boast. Next. Verse 35, and I'm going to jump to 38 and 39. Who can separate us from the love of God, from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then verse 38, for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything created will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Nothing can separate us. Do you see what this means? What this means is there's neither, what does he, he say? He says, can affliction, can your pain and your ill health separate you from the love of God? No. So if you're going through ill health, it can't separate you from that. It doesn't mean that you've lost God's love. You've still got it. Nakedness, that's poverty. See, if you've not got the promotion that you were after, or if you've not got the money that you'd hoped for, can that separate you from the love of God? Does that mean God doesn't love you? No, it doesn't mean that. Can danger, can sword, can persecution, can death? No, none of these things. None of these things, he's saying, none of these things which we're facing can separate us from God's love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I want to f finish with this verse, which I jumped over. Verse 37. No. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice the tense. It's not who loves us, though he does. It's through him who loved us. The bank can come. What does this mean? If it's past tense, he's referring to a moment in time when we were loved. So you being able to conquer in anything that you're going through in life, whatever it is, is dependent upon knowing 
you are loved in Christ. He's drawing us back again to the cross. Remember that antidote, the silver bullet, if we're doubting? He didn't spare his son. And he's saying it again. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's no, there's no, I've got nothing clever to say this morning. The, the only, so if you're hurting, if you're struggling, if you're doubting, and we all do at certain points in our lives. All of us do. If you are in that place, then Paul says, you conquer through him who loved you. So he says, go back to the cross and see there the Father's love and see there the Son's devotion to his Father, his obedience, his willingness to pay the ultimate price for you. The measure of how loved we are is in the display of the sacrifice God was willing to pay for us. The measure of his love for me is not found in the number I have in my bank account or how healthy I am but in the fact that the son came and took on flesh and lived the perfect life and died my death and paid the price for me and took it all and overcame you and I will never ever come close to understanding the horrors of the cross but one thing we do know is that he took our hell that we might receive his heaven why don't we stand and we're going to take communion which is I think just a brilliant response we can practically make as we take the bread and the wine celebrating that we are loved in Christ let's pray Father we we are so moved when we look at Jesus Christ and his life and death when we know that he substituted himself for us we're so profoundly moved let us not look for evidence anywhere else that you love us outside of the cross and let us see as Christ is hung there he died in my place praise God <laughs> I was in the tomb but you rolled away the stone and you emerged and in you so did I and we've come out of the grave to a glorious day the glorious resurrection day and just as Lord Jesus right now bodily you are in heaven at the Father's side we know one day we will see you face to face and in that moment we'll be perfectly like you hope for a culture in crisis you are our hope Lord Jesus